0: Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with T.K. Coleman about entrepreneurship, social mobility, and civil society, and who knows what else. You'll enjoy this one. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you for being with us. Uh, This should be a good conversation, not uh, because of me, but because TK Coleman is an interesting man with interesting ideas. TK is the director of entrepreneurial education at the Foundation for Economic Education and co founder and education director of Praxis. He speaks widely on uh, free markets, creativity, and personal responsibility, among other things. And we're probably going to touch on all those topics as they relate to a free and independent civil society welcome tk hey it's good to be here thanks for having me on that introduction was reasonably accurate
1: oh it was more than fine (laughs) <laughs> you know, one of one of my highest priorities in life is to never be the kind of person who gets bothered by the way that I'm introduced. You know, you, you never you never want to have that Hollywood. Do you know who I am Talali? You didn't yeah. mention my other degree or credential. Oh, my gosh. Once, once you get there, man, that's a bad that's oh. a bad space to be in.
0: It, it is that you're right. I would say that's <laughs> one of the markers, right, of a, of a, your soul being in a bad place if you get irritated by how you're introduced. Yeah, so I, I, I always say one, one
1: of my goals in life is to to be bigger than anything that my brand can ever express, to always have more to me than what can ever be captured in a bio or a tweet. And so when when some significant part of me is not expressed in an introduction, I can say that's that's quite all right. That's That's not what it's for, you know?
0: Some people are less than what their brand expresses. So uh, it's good to be bigger, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start with where you are now. And I kind of work backwards uh, from there, although wherever this goes, it goes. But um, I, I thought we'd just start with with Fee, where you are. You're at the Foundation for Economic Education. You're the director of something called uh, Revolution of One. Mm-hmm. I believe I have that correct. Just tell us what that is about and what you're doing there.
1: Absolutely, so I have been working with fee as an adjunct faculty member for about the past six years, and I've participated quite extensively in 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 workshops and seminars designed for high school and college students um, to to promote the economic way of thinking and I've always loved working with fee I've always loved working with the students but there is one thing that has bothered me the entire time, and that is when I when I go to these seminars and workshops, I'd be so impressed with the quality, the level of of education, the uh, the the opportunities that the students who were present had to network with one another and expand their horizons. But many of the people that needed to hear these ideas were absent. And they just didn't associate things like free markets or voluntarism with the particular set of struggles and concerns that are part of their day-to-day lives. And that's something that I, I felt very passionate about changing. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to continue to do this kind of work, but I also knew that I wanted to play a role in, 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 in expanding the audience, You know, uh, you know, my my conviction is that if you really believe in what you're saying, if you really believe in what you're talking about and you really believe that great ideas have the ability to empower people and to help them live more freely and fully, then it it would only make sense if you feel, you know, excited and and eager about, um, you know, letting more people know about it and so right. you know i i i came on as the director of entrepreneurial education with a goal of of popularizing uh, a lot of these ideas and 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 particularly popularizing entrepreneurship not just as the process of founding a startup but as as an attitude as a mentality as as a way of approaching everyday life because i believe if more people can learn to see entrepreneurship as something that is accessible to them, if they can learn to apply entrepreneurial thinking to everyday problems, whether it be family conflicts, school conflicts, career goals, then we will see a a spirit of healthy individualism emerge in this country. And I think that's absolutely essential to everything that any liberty-loving person uh, fights for. Right.
0: How What's entrepreneurial? Define that a little bit or unpack it or what's the, what's the opposite of an entrepreneurial way of thinking?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. So I, I would define being entrepreneurial as something that's different from being an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur is one particular and popular manifestation of being entrepreneurial. But being entrepreneurial is about approaching everything that you do with a sense of artistry an agency. And let's define those two things. To approach something with a sense of artistry means that you don't look for all of the answers outside of yourself, right? You know, so, so the difference between science and art is when I'm thinking scientifically, I begin with an understanding that the truth is out there waiting for me to discover it. I don't, I don't find gravity by just making it up. I discover gravity, and then I figure out how to bring my life into conformity with the principles of gravity, right? Uh, but, but how do you get a Jay-Z song? You know how how do you get a Picasso painting how 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 do you get a new form of architecture well you you have to make it up you have to give your yourself permission to literally make things up. you can't discover new music in the way that you create new music and while it's absolutely important to base the approach to life we take on a foundation of of scientific literacy and critical thinking, it's also important to understand that there are many very important answers in life that have to be made up. And the opposite of this mindset is what I call the permission-seeking mindset where you never rise above the ability to do what you're told and so much of how people are schooled and conditioned to think renders them unable to thrive and survive in an environment where they don't have an authority figure telling them what to think and what to do when there aren't easy answers. And many of the most important challenges in life, many of the most important opportunities in life are of a nature that there is no central authority that can tell us what's best for us. We have to be individuals We have to think for ourselves. We have to take responsibility for the outcomes we want to create. And we've got to say, all right, there's no easy mathematical formula. There's no single one right way to do it. There are thousands of ways to do it. And I have to consult my own preferences, my own principles, my own priorities. And I've got to make a decision to do something for which there is not a pre-existing map. That's the entrepreneurial
0: mindset. Right. No template. Acting without templates Right. Or, or as you say, a permission from an authority. Okay. And then, well, that's agency and artistry together then. Right. I mean, those um, you just sort of gave us a, a portrait of both those things.
1: Yeah. And, and I'll add one more piece to agency. Cause I, cause I forgot, I, I, I was saying that about artistry. Right. But you're right. I mean, it does incorporate both, but wh- one special thing I'll add to agency is having a sense of, of ownership, In relation to the results you want to create in your life, Uh, having a sense of understanding that if I want something in life, there is no one that is going to lose sleep over that quite like me. If I wake up one day and I find myself regretting what my life has become, there is no refund that I can get on that regret. There is no one who loves me enough to the point where they can literally jump inside of my body and live out my regrets for me. I have to live those regrets myself. And so if I want to create something in life, if I want to experience something in life, then I have to take responsibility for making that happen. Even if that's inconsistent with the way the world ought to be. Even if I can fantasize a world where everyone else took care of me, and even if I can argue that that's a superior world, it's not the universe that we have. The universe or that we just have. A more just world. Say that again? Right.
0: We're just a more just world. You know, the world is imperfect. It's never perfectly
1: just. A- absolutely. And, and being an agent doesn't mean that you deny the existence of things like injustice, right? It doesn't mean that you don't set healthy boundaries, that you don't stand up for yourself or that you become a doormat. But being an agent means that even if I am not the one to blame for the, the the rough things that happen to me, even if it's not my fault that we live in a world with flaws, inefficiencies, and problems, the onus is on me to decide what my reaction and response is going to be to the hand that I am dealt.
0: Is it fair to say that if you don't have this kind of mindset, and if you don't have a sense of agency and artistry, which I, I, I like that pairing very much, that the um the result is often maybe usually
1: resentment and despair yes and and I'll push it even further and say you you will be easily and consistently manipulated throughout your life if you live with that mindset you 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 will be taken advantage of to no end because you you'll, you'll not only and and that's where a lot of the resentment will come from right if If you live your life like it's up to someone else and you walk around waiting to be discovered, Yep. <laughs> you're, 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 you're just not going to win that way. Right. That, that's just not how winning works. Uh, e- even if I can find some story of one in a million people who were walking through the, you know, walking through a, a retail store one day and, you know, some Hollywood agent said, hey, kid, you got the look. Here's a million dollars in a roll. You're one way ticket to start. I mean, even if there is a story like that, you know, it's absolutely foolish. To live your life as if that's the plan for success—that's luck. That's somebody else's luck, but somebody else's luck can't be your plan for creating a, a, a for, for creating a meaningful life. And so, if you walk around in, in waiting to be discovered mode, uh, you'll be unfulfilled. You're almost guaranteed to not not experience the things that matter most to you, and you will also be easily manipulated by people who um, are all too happy to make false promises of easy goodies in exchange for your freedom. You
0: know, the term that comes to mind as you're talking is risk aversion. It's one of the things that struck me the most about our world in the last few years, maybe the last few months, but certainly the last few years, is um, it seems to be characterized more and more by this extreme risk aversion like a hyper risk aversion, right? Like we, we we seem to resent that the world presents us with risks, um, uh, and 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 shrink back. More and more people seem to shrink back from that rather than seeing it as an opportunity to um, show uh, what they can do. You know, in a world full of risks or display a sort of mastery. Um, would you agree with that? Is that on the right track?
1: I I do agree with that. I think that's on the right track. And what I'll add to it is that. The problem is not that we fear risk, but rather we we misevaluate where the where the real risk lies. So if, if you are afraid of losing, instead of trying to talk you out of that fear, I'd rather challenge your set of assumptions about what it really means to lose. So, for instance, if you say, well, here's this dream I have and it's this thing I really want to do but I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, if I go do it, then I'll fail, right? And, 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 and I'm afraid of, of how that might feel. Well, I'm, I'm not going to talk you out of, of that fear. That, that fear has its place in life. Instead, what I would do is I would try to help you recontextualize that fear and say, well, you're assuming that by avoiding that risk, you're opting out of risk altogether, and this is the fallacy that many people commit right they they assume that not making a decision is itself a non decision they they assume that there is some neutral ground upon which they can stand and this is the risk free ground and there is no such thing as a risk free ground now you know you may be risk free from maybe having your mother criticize you or having one of your friends laugh at you or something like that but Every choice that you make comes with risk. So whatever that safe thing, whatever that safe thing is that you think you're doing by avoiding what you really want out of life, think about the risk for that, too. And and, and when you start to question your assumptions around that, you begin to realize that there is nothing more risky than being anti-self, There is nothing more risky than abandoning your own principles, preferences and priorities in exchange for someone else's conception of how you should live. I believe it was John Maxwell in in the book, um, Failing Forward. He tells the story of this guy. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but he tells the story of this guy who fell in love with a cocktail waitress. He came from this really wealthy home you know um all Ivy leaguers in his family all really wealthy people and you know he was basically in love with a poor girl who didn't fit in and his family constantly criticized them and constantly said oh you 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 really should date you really should date this girl over here i mean she's a better fit for you she went to a good college and she comes from a wealthy family and the guy was just so afraid of going against the grain of his family that he ended up you know just marrying someone that he thought his family would accept. And several years later, after a bitter divorce, this guy's at a family event and he's just had one, one too many drinks. And he mutters to himself in this state of depression, I should have just listened to my heart and married the cocktail waitress. And at that moment, the music stopped. Everyone in his family stopped talking with one another. And they turned and looked at him and said, well, why didn't you? And Maxwell's Maxwell's message there is that there are plenty of people that are willing to tell you how you ought to live your life and willing to define your priorities for you, but not a single one of those people will ever let you pin the blame on them if your life turns out to be something other than what you want.
0: No, it's all on you. Playing it, it safe is an illusion, man. It's
1: a total illusion.
0: Yeah. Well, what you're just saying—the the plot you just gave us—is, of course, the theme of innumerable novels. You know, over the years, we—and yet we still seem not to have completely absorbed uh, the lesson. Yeah. There, there may be another lesson too. I, another word—I know you—you talk about this, um, like sort of a vic, the the problem of having a victimhood mentality. Mm. And I'll, I'll just give my own a quick uh, anecdote on this. I I published a book. Uh, late last year, a biography of a man named Oscar Charleston. He was a probably the greatest all around player in the history of the Negro Leagues uh, in black baseball, and no one's very few people have heard of him. But he's he's a Hall of Famer, and fantastic. Um, and it's interesting when I talk about Charleston out there today, and just, and, and and just learning about his life and the, those who who played at the same time. Um, they resolutely. Uh, those men resolutely refused to have a victimhood mentality when they had every reason to have a victimhood mentality right uh prevented from playing in the white major leagues by Jim Crow and segregation and so forth uh had very you know um, difficult conditions under which they had to not just play the game but to live their lives uh, and yet um it's very striking uh when you uh, read their own words and um, uh, their uh, memories of, of that time how They took a sort of pride in attacking the situation as it was, and and building, you know, an institution that became one of the biggest black-owned institutions in America, and um, sort of developed sort of depth of character through all that. Now, not that anybody would wish such a situation on anyone, but um, and that's always sort of what you might get blamed for when you sort of criticize a victimhood mentality. But it, it is interesting how the kind of power we have to choose how we approach any. Situation. Does that
1: make sense? Yeah, it makes absolute sense. So it's interesting because conversations about the victimhood mentality can easily slip into controversy because I think there's a, a big misunderstanding about what this means. You know, um, certainly we should not allow anyone to gaslight us. When we are making when we are expressing legitimate grievances about the violation of individual rights, right, if you try to steal my private property, for instance, or you put your hands on my body uninvited, uh, I have every right to express a grievance with that. I have every right to defend myself i have every, every right to assert um, you know uh, you know my own dignity and self respect and there's nothing about that that that's not a victimhood mentality to fight for that. And so, you know, one of the reasons why uh we have so many freedoms in our country and, and we have a long way to go, you know, America's not like a purely free market where we uh, you know, we we certainly honor freedom in 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 word, but not not fully indeed. But so, you know, one of the reasons we have so many freedoms in our country is because people have dared to express their, their dissatisfaction when, when when their rights were being encroached upon, right? And so we certainly need to do that. So when you and I talk about the victimhood mentality, we're not talking about that, you know, um, and, and, and I say that because this is something that I had to learn. You know, I had to learn how to develop a, a spirit of assertiveness. You know, I had to learn how, look, if I go into a restaurant and my food's not cooked, let somebody know, man. And, 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 and don't be afraid that someone's going to say, oh, you're being a victim. No, like you're being the opposite of a victim. You're, you're taking responsibility for changing it, right? Um, and and that, that's what you and I are talking about. You and I are talking about a mentality that says, if I have a problem, I'm going to be honest about it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on what is within my control. And then I'm going to use that as an opportunity to create change. I'm, it's going back to what we said earlier about that entrepreneurial mindset. It's, it's. I'm not going to wait for someone else to save me. I'm not going to wait for someone else to come along and do something about it.
0: The world doesn't have to be perfect before I can begin to thrive. Uh, before I can. Uh, begin to exercise agency.
1: Yeah. You, you know, gr- growing up, by the way, you know, I don't know if you saw the the recent documentary, The Last Dance about the Chicago Bulls dynasty, but oh, yeah. I, I grew up yeah. a big Michael Jordan fan. I'm from Chicago. And one of the reasons why he was able to achieve so much more than any other, you know, basketball player um, is because he had this commitment to excellence that was just unparalleled if if someone you know let's say it's the last play of a game one of his teammates makes a mistake and the Chicago Bulls lose that game a reporter comes up to Michael Jordan and says what happened there on that last play and Jordan has the perfect opportunity to throw his teammate under the bus and say well BJ Armstrong you know committed a turnover and we lost and he never did that he would say things like it's on me As the leader of the team, it's on me. I should have never allowed my team to even be in a situation where we couldn't afford to miss a free throw or we couldn't afford to make a turnover. It's on me. And what he was saying there wasn't, oh, it's my fault and I'm going to go home and feel guilty about it. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying was, as a leader who is committed to winning and getting better, I'm going to focus on that aspect of this loss that I can actually do something about. Because it's pointless for me to focus on things that I can't improve on, that I can't fight, that I can't resist, that I can't transcend. So I'm gonna focus on what can I actually do so that next time we're in this situation, we get a different result. And that's the championship mindset. You can be a victim of circumstance or you can be a champion of imagination.
0: Very good, hey, we're gonna be right back with TK Coleman, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about Michael Jordan. I'll bring Larry Bird into the conversation, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we'll—I promise—we'll talk about civil society. We, we'll be right back. All right, we're back with the practicality, per usual. Here with uh, my colleague, Nicole Rizcala, who is, uh, would you just tell me your title is?
2: (laughs) Director of Recruitment and Senior Consultant. (laughs) Director of
0: Recruitment and Senior Consultant at American Philanthropic. Uh, Perhaps more importantly uh, for this conversation, or maybe just for her life, she is also a marriage and family therapist um, and is good at it, I think, from (laughs) what I can see. Uh, Nicole handles a lot of, she directs our personnel search um, efforts here at American Philanthropic. We do quite a bit of that, and it's an interesting uh, thing, I think, that we do. And you, you've you got a little bit of a rant, maybe, for us here today, right? Because <laughs> yes. you think there's some bad advice going on uh, to young people in particular about careers and, and um, uh, how long they should stay in a job and what they should be looking for in a job, but tell me what you're thinking.
2: Yeah, sure. I'm... Yeah, the rant is a good word because I think in a matter of a week, I heard this advice being given to people of different levels of experience, but especially to younger people that when they when they take a job, that they need to expect to stay there, you know, anywhere from three to five years, but definitely not longer than five years. And it really made me upset hearing that advice being given to people. No, it was it. Well, I think one reason is that it assumes they know where they should be going before they have an experience that would help them. If, you know, be able to make that judgment. And it approaches it. it approaches the relationship at work as purely transactional, mm-hmm. that, that this isn't going to be engaging me on any other level than what I can get out of it for I, where I want to go next. And I think you really rob yourself of some deeper and richer experiences when you already go into something thinking you know what you're going to get out of it.
0: Yeah. And also it seems like it would militate against your really buying in wholeheartedly to a position or a company or
2: place. Right. Is that right? right? Yeah. I mean, the i-gen, um, iGeners, they're referred to as the fragile generation. I, first of all, I don't know what oh, iGen Gen is. Gen Z.
0: Gen Z. Yeah. And that comes after
2: Gen uh, mil- Y. The millennials, yeah.
0: What happened to Gen Y? We, we have we Gen
2: <laughs> X. Gen Y, Gen Z. There is a Gen Y and a Gen Z? Yeah. Right. There, this is just the nickname.
0: I'm totally yeah. confused. But okay, <laughs> continue. What about the iGeners?
2: Oh, I was just saying they're nicknamed um, the fragile like like they're known as the fragile generation mm-hmm. for being super lost, lonely, depressed and um, and I think for good reason because they're being given terrible advice about how to experience, you know, <laughs> people that they meet and work that they're confronted okay, with. Okay,
0: so tell me what what's the advice that you would give to an iGenner yeah. who's just started in a position with say one of our clients.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one thing is to be open to learning and experiencing something that you don't know. So really just making the most of your experience. Obviously, if there are things, you know, about yourself, that's fine. Incorporate that into the experience. It's fine to leave a job after five years. I just don't think you should be going into it already having decided that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think another advice would be to, um, Yeah, just to immerse yourself in any opportunity that your boss is willing to give you. Like, just make the most of it. It sounds
0: like you're saying you shouldn't insist on your job description being followed. Uh, to the letter. No, exactly. That's not the key to happiness (laughs) and success?
2: No, I don't think so. (laughs) Um, And I also had some advice for um, supervisors who are supporting younger staff, because I think that can be really hard.
0: Yeah. Especially, yeah. I I think think a lot of people wonder (laughs) about that. How do you do that?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a difficult situation because, um, because uh, we're kind of raised in a culture of what do I like and what do I not like? Kind of the social media culture, right? You mm-hmm. you have the the icon to, to check. Just gonna, you just kind of
0: go around with the thumbs right. up or thumbs, thumbs down. down.
2: Yeah. So you approach your experience and people like that. I like this. I don't like that. And then all of a sudden it's your boss's responsibility to appeal to your preferences and what you like and don't mm-hmm. like. And I think that's an unfair expectation um, from the workplace that that the world the your where you work shouldn't be catering to what you like and shouldn't only be catering to what you like and don't like not that that shouldn't be taken into consideration when you work with people but that's not like the orienting culture or mindset so my advice is actually um not to manage younger people, like that you give them responsibility, you make the expectations clear and you give them a chance to figure it out. Um And they might not like that and that's okay. <laughs> and then I think the other thing is to give them more than they can handle. They're not used to that though. Yeah, but I think that that's where, you know, where people are formed and how character is made. And I think at the end of the day, the, fr- the way you become less fragile is by becoming stronger. And that's really- mm what we desire. I do think that's what people yeah. ultimately desire is to be become better. We're very
0: bad at identifying what it is we actually <laughs> desire. Yeah. That's part of the human condition. Nicole, thanks for being Thank with you. us today. Yeah. Appreciate it. P.K., if you don't mind, let me take you back to the beginning, your beginning. Um, You you just mentioned that you grew up in Chicago. Uh, It sounds like you were a P.K. We called them P.K.'s where I came from. Preacher's kids. Uh, (laughs) Talk about the upbringing that you had, maybe the kind of uh, civil society, you know, associational life that you saw around you and how that how that shaped your
1: own worldview. Absolutely. So. It's interesting because I I love self-help and and personal development and motivational psychology. I'm I'm immersed in that kind of stuff, but my upbringing did not involve an academic approach to that stuff. My upbringing wasn't one of like sitting around reading a bunch of self-help platitudes. It was being part of a church community that was actively involved in building human beings making people, uh, helping people overcome real problems, helping people think critically about their purpose in life, helping people fulfill their potential. And my father's church, uh, was and is on the inner city West side, Chicago. And, you know, um, there were different facets of the ministry devoted to different things. You know, there were people in the community that were addicted to drugs and needed rehab. There were people in the community that were dealing with poverty and needed financial literacy, needed financial relief. There were people in the community that were coming from broken homes and needed mentorship, needed a sense of family. Um, there were people that just needed food. There were people that needed knowledge on how to live. Uh, there were people who needed comfort in, in in bereavement. And so my father being a pastor was the overseer, leader is, overseer, leader of a community and and had to make a lot of different decisions about how to help people. And so for me, the church was like an extended family and the church was a place where uh, it makes me think of. There's a verse in the Bible where uh, it says, "Work out your your own salvation with fear and trembling," and 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 the idea there is, faith isn't just something that faith isn't just about what you believe or what you feel. Yeah, faith is about how you treat human beings, and faith is about the action steps that you take towards building a better world. And and, and so I've I've always looked at the the life of faith as, as one that involved. Um, figuring out what our purpose is, living that, and then helping other people do that as well. And you know, I've I've always seen my purpose as something that was uh, inextricably bound together with other people's sense of purpose. I've always felt that my my decision to do what is right and 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 to pursue that in my own life will will make it easier. For other people to do that in their own lives, so we're all here to inspire each other to the best of our ability to live freely and fully so th- th- that's the kind of community that I grew up in where where it wasn't just a matter of theory but it but it was a matter of everyday life and and I, and i try to I try to take that into my work i i'm I'm not interested in just having philosophical arguments about freedom. I'm not just interested in changing people's ideas. I'm also interested in changing the world's incentives, and 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 I think that that's a part of the entrepreneurial mindset as well. You know, like you, sometimes you can't change the 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 way that people see the world, but you can always change the world that people see, and and, and that's the difference between arguing and 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 creating.
0: I would imagine that the the church you're talking about your father's church on the uh, near West side in Chicago is one of the principal uh, institutions of civil society in, in in that community. I I may be wrong about that. Um, What, what sort of advantages, I guess, does that sort of civil society, independent non-governmental institution have over the sorts of government programs, you know, that must be active in that community as well. I mean, did that help shape your view of like, freedom and versus, the uh, you know, the state, so to speak,
1: um, seeing those things in action. Absolutely. And, and, in, in more ways than one, uh, for me, I, I was never raised to see the state as the starting point for, for solutions to life's problems. I, I was raised to see faith and creativity as the starting point. And, you know, when when you look at the Bible, for instance, the kind of people that God used to change the world, uh, most of them weren't politicians. You know, we we think about David, who wrote the entire book of 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 Psalms and 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 we and we and we often use the title King David, but he was a shepherd before that. And he wasn't he he wasn't in a political position when he slayed Goliath. He was just some, you know, nobody shepherd boy that that had a different mindset than the crowd, and and people were surprised by what he was able to achieve because he had faith because he had a different mindset because he was willing to diverge from the crowd. Or you look at Moses. I mean, the villain in that story, Pharaoh, that was the politician. That was the guy that was enslaving people. Moses didn't have political authority, but he was the one that was willing to speak truth to power and say, stop enslaving these people, let them go. And even when he was, even when he was resisted, it was his power of faith that allowed him to transcend this system of institutional enslavement. You 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 look at Joseph. I mean, Joseph was a guy that was uh, a, a great dreamer, but he was sold by his brothers into slavery. And then he was falsely accused of something and thrown into prison and still ended up impacting an entire nation because of his ability to dream and interpret other people's dreams. You look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Why did people reject Jesus? Because they were looking for a political leader. And Jesus comes along and says, the kingdom that I'm building is not built with human hands. It's It's not the kingdom of men. It's the kingdom of God. And it's within you. Like a true leader, Jesus wanted to point people to their own power. Not, not point people to trusting in another, in, another, in another human being to be the one to lead them. And so that, that message was always taught to me as a child. And I was always taught, don't, don't hide behind politicians. Don't, don't ever fall into this mindset where, where you think you can ever take a day off from freedom because you showed up to the voting booth and cast the vote for the right person. You know, it, it's so easy to hide behind politics because if you feel good about the position that you hold on some policy, or if you feel self-righteous about the the voting decision that you made, well, now you can kind of sit back and complain, right? And the background that I was brought up with was, no, you don't ever get to do that. You don't ever get to sit back and complain. What you get to do is show up every single day and do whatever you can as an individual to create freedom, to embody freedom, to fight for freedom. There are no days off for, for, from freedom because freedom will never be the kind of thing that you don't have to fight for. And freedom doesn't come from people. People can get in the way of your freedom. They can disrespect your freedom, but freedom is a pre-political given. It comes from God. And the way that you fight for it is by serving God and living God's purpose for your life. This It, it, it doesn't start or end with politicians. and and And-, and yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, of
0: course what you're saying is hard. I mean, I was just gonna say, you know, the problem with what you're saying is it's difficult, right? It's um it's so much easier, it seems to me, to think that you've done your part by voting the right way, uh, for liking the right things on social media or in my world, sort of this, the nonprofit world, maybe just for writing a check to the right place rather than being personally engaged and involved, uh, and really giving of yourself towards um towards the end of freedom, truth, the good, et cetera.
1: You're absolutely right. It's, it's, it, it's, it's a lot harder to do the work. It's a lot easier to say, Hey, somebody ought to do something about this. I feel good about the somebody that I, that I chose.
0: Right. You know, it's, um, and that's why this message is always like always has to be restated and it's probably never going to be the most popular one. Right. It's, um, it's calling us out of ourselves, out of our comfort zones anyway, uh, towards something it's difficult and, and, and it requires self-sacrifice and um, uh, and it really, um, it's just not easy.
1: It's just not easy. Well, you know, I, I think about this Bible story where um, a group of religious leaders, they, they bring this woman before Jesus and they say, this is an adulteress. We caught her in the very act. Uh, just think about that for a second. Like, like, what in the world must you have been up to to catch an adulteress in the? I don't even want to get into that. But, but, but they say we caught her in the very act. And uh, righteous guys that they are, right? Um, surely they were only up to good. And 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 they say, well, the, the law says that she ought to be stoned. And 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 they're ready, man. They are eager for blood. That they're just all too happy to enforce the law. And, and to use violence against this woman. And and and, and I, I think anytime you are that kind of person, you you should stop and question yourself. Anytime you are eager to initiate violence against another human being, like th- that ought to be a good reason for pause. But they bring this dilemma to Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And and we know how that story ends. You know, they they don't. Uh, They don't do that because they don't they don't pass that test. Um, They have as much evil in, in their own hearts, which is precisely why they wanted to initiate violence against this woman. But, you know, there that that story captures for me the fundamental battle in this world. It's not it's not a battle between left and right. It's it's a battle between violence and voluntarism. It's a battle between coercion. And choice between compulsion and creativity. Uh, it's a battle between force and freedom. And some people are are just you know looking for any situation they can use uh, force on, and some people are looking for any opportunity they can to help other other people become free. And as as a Christian, I I, I believe in in the way of freedom, and uh, not not in the way of force, not in the way of violence, but. It will always be easier to adopt the position of of those religious leaders. It will always be easier to say, hey, look, here, here's somebody over here doing we caught somebody over here doing something. Uh, you know, let's let's use violence against them. That's going to always be the easy position. Um, that's that's precisely why Jesus got killed for his views. He, he, he didn't get he didn't get killed for saying, you know, um, I want to run for president.
0: <laughs> no, I mean. It's easier always to locate evil entirely outside ourselves. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great uh, Russian dissident said that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Um, And that's um, I think we get impatient with that reality. Sometimes that's part of what's behind this um, inclination towards uh, force and coercion is an impatience. It seems to me with, with how people are, how the world is Um, not that we shouldn't, try to change it uh obviously but there's a sort of way of going about it that respects others freedom like you're saying um and it it respects a certain messiness about the whole process and an, a, an uncertainty about the process um that the other way seems to do away with
1: you're you're absolutely right if if I can use one more uh biblical um please do example, I'm enjoying it i you are a TK, TK. By the way, <laughs> you know, you know, when when you when you think about in the scripture, when when uh, the book of Genesis, when God creates human beings, the commandment that's given is to be fruitful and multiply, and that that means more than reproduce in in the biological sense. That that means to exercise your power to be creative forces in the world. It means to take the world that I have given you and to make more of it than what it was when I gifted it to you. It means to live up to what it means to be made in the image and likeness of the creator. And we are all meant to subdue the earth and exercise dominion but the commandment that was given was for us to exercise dominion over the earth. And to exercise dominion over the earth means that being stewards over this earth, we dominate in the areas of our gifting. You know, um some people have a gift for storytelling, some people have a gift for woodworking, some people have a gift for conversation, some people have a gift for for unifying people and bringing them together. Some people have a gift for tilling the land and we're meant to dominate in the area of our gifting, like Jordan dominated basketball, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. dominated dancing. And the root of all evil is when we try to fulfill this God-given desire for domination by dominating other human beings. When we shift our attention from exercising dominion over the earth to exercising dominion over one another, We move from the creative paradigm to the coercion paradigm, and that's where everything goes wrong in life. And if you look at every evil that exists in the world, it comes from that fallen, misguided impulse to exercise dominion over other people. And the calling on each of our lives is to return to that original commandment, to not seek power by dominating another but to seek power by exercising restraint and control and discipline over our own lives and then allowing that gift of creativity we've been given to to express itself by dominating through the area of our gifting that's how we create wealth for others that's how we create wealth for ourselves and that's how we that's how we bring about a flourishing and free society but that's a hard impulse to resist man
0: it, it's really hard and, and exercising with strength and discipline over yourself uh, is obviously one of the hardest things in the world to do. Uh, what What do you think what, – what you were just saying just now reminded me of this. Um, one thing you hear a lot in the world of philanthropy, and nonprofit world is I want to change the world. For well-meaning people, I, say, I want to change the world. I want to change the world. What do you think when when you hear that, when someone tells you they want to change the world, what goes
1: through your mind? Well, you know, first, I, I think about Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist who said anytime you can take another person's belief, you can mock it, laugh at it, and make it look completely ridiculous. Chances are you don't understand that belief and you don't understand the way people think. It's always possible to interpret what people say with charity and with empathy. And when we do that, we build a bridge of communication that might allow us to reach those people, find a, a point of connection between ourselves and them. And so when I hear someone say, say I want to change the world, um, I try to resist any impulse to be irritated by that because they could say a lot worse than that. They could say, I want to kill a bunch of people. They could say, I want to blow up the world. They could say, I want to harm somebody. They can say, "I just want to get you know, get enough for me and mine, and screw anybody over along the way." There, there are a lot of worse things in life than saying I want to change the world. So even if even if the person who says it is is perhaps a little naive about the implications of what they say, um, I think that's a great starting point. I'd rather talk to somebody that wants to change the world than just about anybody else. Um, but what I would say is, as wonderful as it is to want to change the world, that also means that you can do a significant amount of damage to the world because some of the worst deeds have been done by people who want it to change the world. So what I would say is don't confuse mood with morality, don't confuse emotion with ethics, and don't make the mistake of assuming that just because you have a noble sounding desire that Anything and everything that you do in the name of that desire is intrinsically justifiable because it's possible to have sincere intentions and to have tragic results. Sincerity isn't a substitute for truth, right? It isn't a substitute for competence, right? Just because you're sincere and you wanna bring about a good effect doesn't mean you know how to add two and two together. It doesn't mean you're competent. It doesn't mean you deserve to be in a position where you're making choices that affect lots of people's lives. So I would say to people, let the things you do to change the world be an extension of your own self-liberation. So let's start with you. By the way, a lot of people have rolled up their roll their eyes at the likes of Jordan Peterson for harping so much on things like make up your bed and clean your room, and I actually get that. I I, I actually agree with him because there there's some you know there, there's a verse in the Bible that says you know um, he that is faithful with little right. Um, yeah. That's right. You know, there's another verse about despising not the day of small beginnings. And and there's something yeah. to be said about the principles of stewardship that it's easy to to sit back and say, Oh, if I just had a whole bunch of money, if I could control the entire economy, boy, would I sure do good. And yet you can't even take out the garbage when 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 someone at when when someone at home needs to do that, you can't even keep your room clean. You can't even show up on time. You, you can't even help out anyone around the house. You can't even get along with your own brother. Like y- y- You want to be the person with the power to unify an entire nation, but you can't get along with anybody at your church, anybody in your family. And, and, and it's not a way of saying you don't deserve to have power, but it's a way of saying don't underestimate the fact that you can do way more damage with the kind of power you seek if you don't learn how to exercise power in the small areas of your life. So focus on self-liberation, focus on being free in your own mind, being free in your own life, because uh, there's a quote by Howard Thurman I say all the time where he says, ask not yourself what the world needs, but rather what makes you come alive, for that is what the world needs. People who have come alive. You want to change the world? Become the best possible version of yourself. And, and, And that will be more than enough. That will have implications far beyond what you can imagine. That's extremely well put, TK.
0: (laughs) I have nothing to add. That's wonderful. Um, And certainly, uh, as you are pointing out, it really is in line with what all the – every spiritual master, not just in the Christian tradition, but as far as I know in any of the other world's great religious traditions, would agree with that. It's always um, uh, looking inward and starting with yourself and starting with small things because those actually are often the biggest things that there are. Um, let me bring it back, which i got to let you go. Let me bring it back to entrepreneurship. Um, what, uh, what world is this kind of spirit of entrepreneurship? The fact of entrepreneurship have to play in tr- as we try to rebuild, at least I think of it as rebuilding American civil society, maybe especially in America's you know poorest, most marginalized communities. What's, um what do you see the role of entrepreneurship there and, 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 and what you, maybe are you doing with
1: revolution of one to help that happen? Well, you know, if, if, if you think about it, um, God has provided human beings with a built in mechanism for overcoming poverty, creating wealth and getting our needs met. It's called creativity. Zig Ziglar said, the best way to get what you want is to help other people get what they want. The world is an ecological system. It's it's a system in which we meet our own needs by taking our creative abilities and translating that into value creation for others. That's how life works. That's not just true for Elon Musk or or Mark Zuckerberg. That's how life works at every single level. And so even if you aren't trying to change the world and you're just trying to get through the day, you're just trying to, to live a, a, a decent life, there's no way to do that in a way that's divorced from serving others. And so the goal of life, to quote Parker J. Palmer, is to find the point of intersection between your heart's deepest gladness and the world's deepest needs and find a way to meet the world's deepest needs through activities that express your heart's deepest gladness. That's the entrepreneurial spirit. That's the entrepreneurial mindset. Now, what does it have to do with with civil society? Well, I think a lot of people falsely assume that the great enemy of a civil society is the existence of manipulative uh, deceptive politicians who tell people all sorts of misleading things about life and i don't think that's the the cause of the problem at all i think that's a symptom of the problem that could be very easily dealt with the cause of the problem is people have not been taught or conditioned to think seriously about their own creative power because when people take their own creative power seriously. They don't see themselves as victims. And when they don't see themselves as victims, they don't need saviors. And when they don't need saviors, there are a whole lot of people that immediately go out of business. (laughs) And when there is an entire infrastructure built on a demand for saviors, those saviors have to make sure people are educated in a way to see themselves as powerless. They have to make pe- they have to make sure people are conditioned to think in a way that makes them laugh at the idea that they have the ability to make a difference. And once you got people laughing at the idea of their own power, well it becomes easy to convince them to give up their freedom, to give up their rights, to give up their advantages, to give up their resources in exchange for a savior to lead them. But in a world where people are confident in their own ability to do for themselves, to think for themselves, you come along saying, let me be your Lord and Savior, they will laugh at you, not themselves. And so I think the role that entrepreneurial thinking has in helping us fight for and restore and promote a civil society, it's its that entrepreneurial thinking points us back to the thing that God wanted us to know from the beginning. And that is each of you, every single one of you is made in the image and likeness of the creator. And you are all empowered to make something of this world through the use of your gifts. You don't need anybody else to do your thinking for you. You don't need anybody else to save you. The kingdom of God is within you. Look within. And that truth will make you free. And once you know that, all the people who promise you something else, you see through the lies and you see through the deception. And instead of being like Adam and Eve in the garden of evil, trading away paradise in exchange for the serpent's lie, you can be like Jesus at the, uh, G- Jesus when he's tempted by, by the devil saying, I'll give you this. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus is like, what? Like this already belongs to my father. Why would I trade in this awesome position that I have to worship you? There's nothing you can give me that's better than what my father has already given me. That's the entrepreneurial spirit, man. If every human being thought like that, If every human being looked at politicians and manipulative and deceptive leaders and said, man, there is nothing you can promise me that is better than what my father has already placed inside of me. If you'll if you'll if you'll please excuse me and get out of the way, I'm going to go experience the joy and adventure of turning this world upside down through the expression of my individual creativity. I don't know what's more needed than that.
0: And this is what you're doing, right? This is the this is the gospel that you're spreading at Revolution of One at the Foundation
1: for Economic Education. Absolutely. If you want to know more about the Revolution of One project, go to fee.org slash rev1, F-E-E dot org slash rev one I have a series of podcasts and live streams where I interview different entrepreneurs, educators, creators with an effort to, you know, expose people to uh, folks that are out there with interesting stories and insights about how to live more freely and fully in your everyday life. Uh, I also, you know, write a lot of uh, article content. I create a lot of media content myself designed to encourage messages of, of self-ownership and personal responsibility. And uh, I also do a lot of workshops and, and trainings as well. But you can find out all that information and, you know, wh- where to follow and support my work at feed.org slash Rev1 it's fantastic stuff. Um, TK,
0: this is a highly enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate your giving us the time today
1: and wish you all the best. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. This is, this has been awesome. Thank you.